You can be seated, and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. As they're headed that way, if you want to uh, turn in your Bibles or via your apps or however you follow along to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, once again we are um, we're in the book of Acts. I think we've got two sermons left. We started the book of Acts last week, uh, I mean sorry, last, at the beginning of last year. Man, that was quick. At the beginning of last year, we started, and we've been kind of moving through it for about a year now. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the book as much as I have. Uh, I guess you could say uh, over half the life of our church, we've been studying uh, uh, the author Luke's works as we took three years in the book of Luke. Um, So uh, anyway, some pretty incredible things. If you remember, there's a very dramatic scene uh, in, in Acts chapter 19 uh, where Paul starts this uh, riot in Ephesus and the whole town has really been out of shape. Um, he leaves there, makes a few other stops, feels the Lord is calling him to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So in chapter 20, he goes back through uh, a little place called Miletus, and calls for the Ephesian elders. They meet him there. There's this very dramatic scene of them weeping as he gets on the ship. They know they're not going to see Paul's face again. He makes a few more stops and ends up in Jerusalem. Um, James, the leader of the church then, says, man, it's amazing what God's doing through you, Paul. Um, But let me tell you, there's some Jews here pretty irked about you um, and says that uh, you're teaching uh, all the Gentiles not to follow the Jewish customs. Of course, that wasn't true. A couple other false accusations against him. And uh, they come up with this plan that he's going to go into the temple and he's going to take on a similar to a Nazarite vow and he's going to do several steps in order to do this. And he goes into the temple and he's worshiping there and he's doing his thing. And there's some Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, that see him start this huge riot. They lock the gates of the temple. They begin beating Paul. Very dramatic scene. Uh, The soldiers get wind of it. The Roman soldiers, they come in there. They stop the beating uh, and uh, give him a chance to kind of talk about uh, what's going on. Now, a lot of theologians and commentaries uh, call this section the trials of Paul. And you're going to see today, just as you've seen already, uh, it's just one chapter after another, same, you know, different chapter, same song and dance. Uh, Paul, very uh, bold and courageous about presenting the gospel, the people not receiving it, uh, wanting to beat and kill him. Um, You know, if you read through really 16 on, you see one city after another, Paul goes in, proclaims the gospel, makes him disciples. Uh, either barely escapes with his life or um, is literally beat to death and dragged out of the city and left for dead. The riot in uh, 19, uh, the the Jews trying to kill him in 21, again and again, plots to kill him. And um, this is just his life. And I was with a, I was with a pastor this week uh, in Indianapolis and he was asking, hey, where are you at? Uh, what are you studying? And uh, we're both sitting in the airport working on our messages, and I said, well, I'm in, I'm in the last part of Acts. 
And uh, this guy's pastor of a large church. And he said, you know what? I've never been able to finish the book of Acts. So I always kind of hit like chapter 19 and then I just kind of peter off because it's like the same thing again and again and again. How do you keep preaching that same message? And I began to think about that. And I think there's some good stuff for us here. But I also think, uh, isn't this just like our life? Like it's just sometimes it just feels like the same thing again and again. And there's the, the same difficulty around every corner. There's the same fearfulness that seems to grab our heart. There's a temptation to be anxious because God's not doing what we expected him to do at this point. And uh, every corner we turn, it seems like there's another difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And so what I, what I want to look at here is, uh, again, kind of three things that, that we see. There's many more than, than these three, but... I think there's three kind of themes in these chapters and uh, three things that the Holy Spirit would like us to see about our lives as we continue studying this. And the first is that we would live compelling lives. To catch you up on the story, after Paul left uh, the Ephesian elders, again, he goes into the temple. He's beaten there. The Romans uh, grab him. The cohort there grabs him. They don't know what to do with him. He's interviewed by Felix, who is kind of the governor there in that area. He's left in prison for two years. But by the way, can you imagine how hard that would be? One thing to be persecuted, something else just to be completely forgotten. Don't be too discouraged. It was during that time that Paul wrote several books in our New Testament. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Colossians. What an incredible piece. He wrote Philippians. Eventually, he's uh, succeeded by a man named Felix. Uh, I mean, by Festus. Felix, uh, he was a terrible ruler. Left. Festus takes over. He's reviewing his new responsibilities, finds Paul in prison, wants to go hear from him. And then after uh, him, we see him interviewed by Agrippa himself. So we're going to kind of walk through all of that. But what I want to focus on, if you look in chapter 25, verse 21... Paul appeared, uh, appealed to Caesar in verse 21. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So Festus puts on this big to-do thing, all the local authorities with these feats of strength and airing of grievances, and the centerpiece is Paul defending himself. And Agrippa wants to know, why do all the Jews hate this guy? Why is he in prison? Why couldn't he be free? And a matter of fact, that comes up with everyone that interviews him. They're like, Paul, tell us what in the world is going on with you, man. You could be free right now, um, but you just keep, you just keep pressing this gospel on these people. If you would just, if you would just shut up about the gospel... If you would just shut up about the way, if you would just keep your mouth quiet, you could be free and live this life. And because he would not be quiet, he lived this provocative life in such a way that everyone keeps asking him, Paul, what is the deal? And here's my point. People constantly wanted to know what made Paul tick. They kept asking, why are you in this condition? It doesn't have to be this way. And the truth is, the manner of Paul's life is what provoked the question again and again. And our lives should provoke such a question. We're not in the same circumstances, certainly, as Paul is, I realize. But people should be able to look at us and 
our lives provoke the same question in their minds. Why do you live like this? I don't get why you live like you do. Peter said it this way in chapter, in 1 Peter 3.15. You've probably heard this several times. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of hope that is in you. Peter's saying that our lives are supposed to be lived in such a way with the example of Paul here that your life provokes this question that we live this provocative and compelling life that other people look from the outside and they wonder what is going on there. Again, I was out of town this week. I was watching the news of once again another shooting. And they would cut away from that to the wildfires going on all around cut to one of the guys in the story, some national news channel I was watching, and he says, you know, no motive has been released for the shooter. And the guy is just visibly overwhelmed, the guy who's doing the interview. Like, he's got family that's in California where the area it's burning, and he's trying to get through this news piece. And he said, I, he's just shaking his head in disbelief. Like, I just I can't believe how hard things can get. And I'm thinking, well, we, as Christians, we weep and we mourn with the difficulty that is all around us. But we don't lose hope about what God's doing. I think you see that in Paul's life. It doesn't matter the false accusations. It doesn't matter that the world seems to be crumbling around them. It doesn't matter that even some of his own friends are abandoning him. I mean, it hurts him, yes, but his hope is in something else. And that's what Peter talks about, that we would be able to give an answer of the hope that's within us. See, our hope is not in our 401ks. It's not in the houses that we've built. It's not, it's not, in, it's not even in our own life. Isn't that the statement that Paul makes in chapter 20? I don't even count my life as, 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 as worth anything to me. That our hope is so radical and so paradigm-shifting that the watching world that we interact and do life with, would have a reason to come and ask us about the hope. Think about your neighbors. Those that live literally, your, your literal neighbors, that live right next to you or across the street from you. Do, you. do you live in such a radical way that they get to know you in such a, in such a way that they, over coffee or at your front door, say, man, you just got to tell me, what are you hoping in? How are you not so rattled by these situations? How are you not rattled by all that's going on? And this text in 1 Peter 3, Peter is supposing that our life provokes that question, that people are so intrigued by how we live or how we do what we do that they can't help but ask us about that. Peter and Paul apply that in a number of places, and we don't have time to go through all of those. Peter here, really in, in three different uh, dimensions, says that our life should look remarkably different than the world in at least these three areas. One, how we treat our spouse. That we would love and respect and show honor to each other, that we would live in an understanding way, he says, to such a degree. This is what he says before he gets to give, ready to give an answer to hope, that we should, we should honor and live with our spouse in such a way that the world thinks it's weird. 
that the world thinks it's just crazy that when when you're at the in the, in the lunch break room and they're all kind of you know talking about how terrible their spouse is that that we would speak blessing about our spouse that we would talk about them in a way that honors them that we would listen that we would seek to alter what we really want to do in order to love our spouse well and to live with them Peter says in an understanding way and one of the things that's going to do is it's going to be so countercultural to the rest of the world that they're going to come and say man you got to and what is going on with you two? Remarkably, that, that's not how most Christians live. I was talking with someone who's been coming to our church for maybe over a, a year now, and they started getting involved in our community groups and huddle, and, and she asked this very question. There's something just so different about these girls that, that are in this discipleship group that they just, they don't speak bad about their husbands. They're not complaining necessarily about their jobs. Everything's not Eeyore. Oh man, woe is me. They've got hope in something else. Secondly, Peter mentions how we treat our brothers, Christian brothers and sisters. He actually says there that we would be of the same mind, that we would be so unified on the things that really matter. Not the things that don't matter. We're not letting them. And I'm not saying you can't have your opinion. But that we would literally, because we're brothers and sisters, we've been adopted by God, that we're part of his family, that, 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 that we're in the bloodline, right, of Christ himself, that we would image forth in such a way, that, again, that the watching world would say, man, what is going on in there? You guys really love each other. What does it mean, church, for us to love one another in such a way that it demands an, a gospel explanation from the watching world? He even says in here that we don't repay evil for evil. So say, say someone in our own church does something to you that is outside of God's will, certainly. It's something that's so hurtful to you. You've been so betrayed. And what you want to do is get them back. Is that not our first knee-jerk reaction that we want to we want to repay evil for evil. But Peter says, no, no, no. We, we live in a whole different kingdom now. As a matter of fact, I don't want you just to repay evil for evil. I want you to bless that evil person. The one that's done evil to you, that you lay awake at night hoping that they would suffer the same harm that you suffered. Instead, Peter says, what we should do because of what God's done in us, and we've been forgiven while we were yet sinners, he died for us because what we should do is lay, lay awake at night praying for that person to be reconciled with God. Now that's countercultural. When's the last time someone did something to you that was hurtful? And instead of making lists in your mind of how you wish they would be hurt back, you said, you know what? I just want to bless them. That is a supernatural work that only God can do in our lives. And that's what makes the church the church. We're not the church just because of some religious ideology that we believe. We're not the church because we all come from the same place. We're the church because we're all part of God's family and we come from radically different places. Yet God has transformed a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And that's what makes us, church, remarkably different from the world. And when other people are throwing up their hands and without hope, the Christians are just pushing in. What does it say in, in, in Hebrews 12 that we would, we would 
hold unswervingly, that we, we would gl- grasp the source of our hope. And as things got harder, we would just go deeper. We would just press in in relationship with one another. We would press in in our walk with the Lord. We would press in into the lost world around us. Peter here mentions another thing even in this chapter, and maybe this might be the most significant one, how we handle disappointment or persecution or pain. And we talked about this even a couple weeks ago. Hey, let's not just put on the pretty face and just act like all of life is okay. Like life might be okay for you in this season, but there's just as many in this room who just want to throw their hands up and just give up. Because life can be overwhelmingly difficult. And what Peter says here is that when you walk through difficulty because your hope is not in your circumstance it's in what God's doing and it's in the coming resurrection and in our our inheritance that we have in heaven that's where our hope is and that what 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 Jesus says we're we're moth and rust can't can't destroy where thieves can't break in and steal that we've we've entrusted right our whole lives into something that is so eternal that nothing can happen to it because of that we have a hope that is not affected with circumstance. And when we walk through pain and disappointment, these are some of the best places for us to really be a gospel display. Anybody can be happy when things are going well. Of course they can. But can we have joy when things are not going well? When you're up against the ropes, when you get more bad news, when it's like the life of Job and it's one after another after another, and we're weak and we're weary And we're almost to the point of being overwhelmed. And we hear God whisper to us again, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. As a matter of fact, if you really want to be used of God, you've got to get to the place where you have nothing left of yourself to give. There's nothing left of yourself to boast in. That's where Paul had gotten. He had been so overcome with this Thorn in the flesh, it calls it, that he's throwing up his hands and saying, God, I got nothing left. And Paul says, perfect. That's where I want you. Because it's in that moment of full release, of absolute surrender we talked about a couple weeks ago, that God really can use you. Another thing scripture talks about is the generosity of the Christians, that we should be generous lives. As a matter of fact, one of the churches is going through a famine. And Paul writes to the other churches that he'd planted. And they had nothing to give. But it said with joy, they reached and cleared out everything else they have to send to these other churches. They gave in abundance, sacrificially. And it demanded a gospel response. Why do you live like you live? I was researching today that the Average evangelical Christian in America gives 2.4% of their income to the mission of God. I'm not talking about just a church. I'm just talking about to life-giving, gospel-focused work anywhere. 2.4%, the average person in evangelical church in America. You know what the average American gives to charitable causes? 2%. So you're saying we we in the church are just point. Four, less than half a percent different than the watching world who has no other hope in anything else. We're, that does not demand a gospel explanation. That is no kind of life that is a gospel metaphor. 
Most people, most lost people just assume that Christians are just like them. Maybe they're a little more moderately, more moral. And they show up to church once a week. That's not a people who live entirely for a different kingdom, whose hope is in something otherworldly. Our generosity should beg the question, man, why do you do that with your money? I heard something that helped me. Christians who do what God tells them to do with their money will be three or four steps behind their peers who make the same amount of money. Three or four steps behind their peers. One of the early church fathers says there should be things that we want to do but can't do. Because of how we've invested. Isn't that a provocative life? Isn't that a way that provokes the question? Isn't that what some of these historians, secular historians have written? We have their letters back and forth from the emperor of this day that are so bewildered by the Christians. The first thought was live compelling lives. The second is this, that we would look for open doors. We would look for open doors. Paul is just the greatest opportunist. He was always looking for ways to tell people about Jesus. And if you're saying, hey, let's... Luke, when are we going to get to the scripture? Oh, you just wait. We're fixing to walk through a couple chapters. So, Back in chapter 21, he's being beaten by these religious leaders. You remember this, that they had the council? They, they're, literally, they're literally beating him, and the Roman soldiers come in, and they, they have to literally carry him out because they're trying to, it even says in here, they're trying to tear his limbs off. It's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that, these people are mad. And you remember what he does? They're like carrying him off. He's like, hey, can I get just a second? I just, just one second, I just want to talk to these people. Makes this orders move. You remember this way back? You, you can go back and read a couple chapters ago. And he just tells them about Jesus. He says, man, look, i got all these people locked up in one room. I'm just going to share Jesus with them. Maybe somebody's going to come to Christ in this group. And he, and he just infuriated them again. They start coming after him. And again and again, Paul just looks for the, the best opportunity. So he's going to be put on trial before these Three leaders, even we're going to see this today. And one after another, after another, he's just trying to share the gospel. He's before the Roman tribune, the cohort, and he's asking them why he's on trial, and he just shares the gospel. And then he's before, again, the Jewish high priest the next day after the big beating, and all he wants to do, again, he just gets up and shares the gospel. Then he's before Felix. Look at this with me in chapter 24. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla. This Felix is just a, a, just a terrible leader, incompetent, an evil man. Used to be a slave. He would marry people so that he could get uh, in political position. This Drusilla is one of those, his third, third wife. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 25. And as he reasoned about, this is, this is what Paul's doing. He's, this is his gospel. This is his gospel message. He's reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Against, about righteousness, that there's no, none righteous, no, not one. Self-control, that we're slaves to sin until God comes and transforms us and makes us slaves unto righteousness. And then the coming judgment, that we'll all give an account of our lives one day, that that's... That's what's coming. That's, that's his gospel message. 
It says, this is such a powerful uh, word here. Felix was alarmed. Your translation may say, may say fearful. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He was alarmed. He was convicted to the heart. The actual word is uh, maybe translated fearful. It's the same word construction used of the Philippian jailer. Remember after, uh, you know, they were singing and then the, uh, and then, you know, the earthquake happened and Philip thought that they had, le- had left and they were like, no, hey, hey we're still here. And it says he was overcome with the same fearfulness of the supernatural that had just happened. And when Felix runs away, what did Phil, uh, Phil, the Philippian jailer do? He asked, what must I do to be saved? Evidently, Paul could see on the face of Felix a real conviction. Maybe you've seen this on someone as you share the gospel with them or truth with them. You see real conviction gripping them. I remember being at a, speaking at a, a youth camp one day and, man, the Holy Spirit was moving in an incredible way and conviction was falling. You could just feel it. It had nothing to do with my sermon. I promise you it was terrible. God was just bringing real conviction there's a few people that I could see in the crowd, some adults that, I mean, their face was, you know, a bit contorted. They, I mean, the real conviction was falling on them. And it came to a time where we were going to end. And I remember talking to people that they needed to talk to God and do business with God. And at, at that moment, these adults got up and literally ran out the, the, the building. They didn't want to deal with this. They didn't want to deal with their own sin. This is what's happening in the life of Felix right now. He's convicted to the heart He wants nothing of it. In the next chapter, again, this is Paul looking and just seizing upon every opportunity that he has. The next chapter, uh, we see his defense before Festus, chapter 25, verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed an offense And this is Paul's compelling life. He just says, hey, listen, I've not done anything wrong here. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem, be tried on these charges, and be tried on these charges before me? And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death, he says. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give them up to me. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus had conferred to his counsel. He answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Again, you can read all of chapter 25. You can see this in, in incredible gospel presentation, again, that Paul's doing again and again. At this point, Paul's been sitting in prison for two years. Again, like I said before, he's writing scripture during that time. He appeals to Caesar so that he can eventually get to Rome. Remember, that's where Jesus said that he had to go. Then we see him take this opportunity before Herod Agrippa. And this is what I want to spend a little bit more time on. Just so you're not confused, there's a bunch of Herods in scripture. Herod the Great... He's the one who was uh, in charge when uh, Jesus was born. He's the one that ordered the decree to kill all the males under age two. Just, I mean, the epitome of, of an evil person. Can you even imagine? His son was Herod Antipas. He's the ruler of Galilee. 
the territories in which Jesus and John the Baptist carried out most of their ministries. He's the one who questioned Christ before his death. He's also the one who beheaded, had John the Baptist beheaded. Apple didn't fall far from the tree there. Just an evil person. Then there's Herod Agrippa. So this is Herod the Great's grandson. He's a persecutor of the church. In Acts 12, he's the one that had James killed. Not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. And then there's this guy. This is Herod Agrippa II. So he's the great, great grandson of Herod the Great. He's the one that's going to hear Paul's testimony here. Side note, he's got an incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice. You're going to see her show up in a minute. I mean, again, just the epitome of righteousness with these guys. Chapter 25, verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to not live a second longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And he, as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that we... After we've examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. They couldn't bring up anything against Paul. Again, Paul had lived, he had gone the next step to have a life of integrity and to not offend them with his own life. The only thing that was so offensive to him, to to the Jews, was his belief that Jesus was the Messiah. So here it goes. We're going to read a large portion of this. I think I have most of it on the screen. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made this defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme And in my raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The word raging fury, the same word that we used to talk about a wild animal. This is a beautiful part of Paul's conversion, so bear with me as we get, as we look at this. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. And at midday, O king, I saw a light. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? The goads were like, uh, you know, old roots. Maybe you've done this, clean your yard out, and you still hit these old roots with your lawnmower. You trip over them. This is what Jesus is saying to Saul. Saul, you're living your life in opposition to me. This is the way the world was meant to be. This is the salvation story from the beginning of time. This is going to happen, and it's all going to culminate. And yet you are fighting against it. You're kicking against the goads. Jesus is saying to Paul, 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 how'd that go for you, man? Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And this is so good, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things of which you've seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Look at the reason why. To open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Man, that's so good. And so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim the light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What an incredible witness. Isn't this unbelievable? Time after time after time, the Holy Spirit emboldens him in such a way that he's able to proclaim the gospel to people who have the very right at that moment just to end Paul's life. And yet he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't make this about him or whether they're going to like him or not like him. This is not the point. The point is that he would be someone who proclaims the good news of Jesus. Paul understood very clearly why he was there, right? To get the gospel to Rome. And he does that. Nearly 3,000 miles from Jerusalem where this all started. And he does it with such poise and such peace. He's looking for an open door. Anywhere he goes, he's in prison, he's telling people, the the very guards, about Jesus. He's on trial, he's telling them about Jesus. 
Let me bring this a little closer to home, that there's an open door in front of you, all of you. That God is at work all around us, and he has opened doors in front of you. As a matter of fact, he, through his providence and the Holy Spirit, has planted you in places near an open door that you would proclaim the gospel to them. Now, we often don't refer to ourselves as sent by God, but Jesus does. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We've been sent to our work and to our neighborhoods and to the hobbies that we love. Every Christian, not just the ones who are articulate in the gospel, not just the ones that have been saved a long time, not just the ones that went to seminary, not just the ones that are preachers and teachers, that every one of us, if we claim God as our Father and Christ as our Savior, that we have been sent. The same Holy Spirit that's in Paul, that's working in Paul again and again, and his faithfulness proclaimed the gospel lives inside of you. But see, we don't see things this way. We think life is all about us. That's where we get it wrong. Our perspective's wrong. That's why when something that's uncomfortable happens, we're like, God, where are you at? I was like, no, you know where a candle shines the brightness? The brightest is in the darkest room. And God has placed all of us in some dark situations so that we would be a light for him, so that we would understand our sentness. The Holy Spirit transforms our everyday lives into amazing opportunities for us to display and declare the gospel. Jesus may not have appeared to either one of any one of us in the night telling us to go to Rome, but we are sent nevertheless, and there are open doors everywhere in front of us. chapter before the first Peter passage we read a minute ago in chapter 2 you're probably familiar with this again Peter telling the church that you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light isn't this the same gospel that that Paul just quoted that I was living in darkness and was awakened by the light. I love the word that Peter uses there, this idea of priesthood. Think about the priest today, the guys with the collars. If you see any of them around, you know those are the guys that you would go to to connect to God. And Of course, they're not the... That's not limited, certainly, to them, but that's the image of it. And that's what, that's what God is saying about us, that we carry the image of God in us and we've been transformed by the work of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And so the watching world should know, if I want to get connected to God, I just go to one of, the, one of the priests. I just go to someone who follows him. I just go to anyone who bears the name of Christ. Any of the followers of the way, they're going to tell me how to get connected to God because we carry around the kingdom of God in us. There's open doors all around us, like a tall house on a mountain or a city on a hill or a lamp in a dark room, as Jesus talked about it, lighting up the darkness. The problem is just most of us just don't walk through the doors. Just as an aside, open doors does not mean life is going to be easy on the other side of that door. As a matter of fact, we should expect opposition Those who walk by faith will always be opposed by those who walk by sight. Those who walk by faith 
will always be opposed by those who walk by sight. Where in the Bible does God call anyone to an easy job? I just want to find one. I just don't see any of them. God says, hey, I have a task for you, and it's not going to inconvenience you very much. It's just going to take a moment of your time. It's not going to make you uncomfortable, so don't worry. It's just going to be simple. Has God ever asked that way? No, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, he says, hey, I want you to go this way, and it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to be with you. He asked Noah to build an ark before anyone had ever seen rain. How ridiculous is that? He faces ridicule from all his people. He, people turn their back on him. They show up daily as he's actually building the huge boat and they just make fun of him again and again. But notice in every one of these great stories of the faith in the Old Testament, God always reveals that his presence is with them. You see a rainbow show up at the end of that. You see God's presence all around that with Noah. You see with Abraham leaving his country, not telling him where to go. Look at all that's standing before him. Is there anything easy about that? Absolutely not. But he says, you know what? I'm going to be with you. There's going to be a sign of my presence. I'm going to tell you where you're, when you've gotten where you're going. See Elijah declaring the glory of God on Mount Carmel, certainly God with him. You see Moses calling to deliver God's people and Pharaoh's heart's hardened. And you see God is with Moses you see Gideon, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the smallest guy from the smallest town. He was the least qualified. Even his own people didn't like him. And God says, Gideon, I choose you. And he's, you, you remember the story, he's already God. <laughs> God, no, not me. Like, like, these people don't even talk to me. I'm the guy that sits alone in the lunchroom, right? These are the people that I'm, I'm just, I'm that guy. And, and God says, no, Gideon, it's you. That's, that's who I want. So Gideon gets to work and he gets all these soldiers together and, God keeps whittling them down, whittling them down, whittling them down. He ends up with 300. He's going to take on these Midianites, this overwhelming task. And he does it because God's with them. Strategy meeting with Joshua as they head into the new land. And they see Jericho. What is the strategy? I don't even want you to, don't even carry swords. I want you to bring some trumpets. You can beat them over the head with trumpets. No, I want you to. To go march around the city. You remember the story. How ridiculous does that sound? God doesn't ask you to do easy things. If it were easy, then you wouldn't depend on him in the first place. And this is, this is where we've lost sight of what it means to walk by faith. That there's very difficult things in front of us. And God's going to ask us to go through a difficult road. And there's going to be opposition and difficulty and hardship. And it's going to be on every corner. That's okay because we don't, we don't lose heart. What does Paul say? Don't grow weary in doing good. God never promised easy. Think about Joseph, used by God to save the entire region from famine. What a weird road he took to get there. Sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused for having integrity, sent to prison for decades. Interprets a dream, says, hey, when you get up there, remember me. The guy forgets him. He's there for years again. All the while, what's Joseph doing? He's looking for open doors. At the end of his story, we see the culmination of all this. He's promoted second to Pharaoh. God uses him in incredible ways. 
But Joseph could not be used if he had grown bitter, if he had given up hard, if he had given in to the difficulty around him. God never promised easy. He only promised that he would go with us. Can I remind you that God is with you? A lot of people use the excuse when they're facing difficulty. They say, you know what, I just don't have a peace about it. And what they really mean is that the call of God on their life makes them very uncomfortable. And they want an easy life. All we want is an easy life. But God's never been interested in easy. Never. Colossians says we should let the peace of God rule in our hearts. Let's not interpret that for comfortable life rule in our hearts. As a matter of fact, peace lies on the other side of obedience, not this side. The peace many of those people are likely referring to as assurance. Is this safe or not? Listen, peace comes in knowing that you are a child of God. Nothing can pluck you out of your hand. Your eternal reward in heaven is secure. God is all-knowing. He knows every possible outcome of every possible situation. He knows everything. He even says that he calls the stars by their name and knows the number of hairs on your own head. That's your identity. He knows all of those things, and he loves you perfectly. With all the crud in your life, with all the secrets that you don't think anybody knows, he knows you and loves you, and that should give you an overwhelming peace So church, let's not confuse peace with being comfortable about something. Many of you have a hard job. You got a mean boss, difficult relationship from a dysfunctional family. Can I remind you that you're not the first person to face a difficult kingdom assignment? And I want to remind you that you're not alone, that God is not through using you. There are open doors all around us. They often start right where you are. You don't have to go overseas. You just got to walk across the street. Some of us buy into the myth that the door to ministry or mission will happen in the next season of life or when our kids are grown or when they're out of school or when I have some more money or when I have some more time or when the pastor's planned something. And none of those things are true. God's calling you today to look for the open doors right in front of you. Now, some of us may disqualify our message with a hypocritical life, and I hope that's not the case. Many of us, we say that Jesus is the bread of life, but we run to everything else for sustenance. And maybe the step for you today is that you would align your priorities with his. And for others, our lives are not the problem, it's the message. It's actually articulating. We would have stood before any of these people and just been like, Hey, where do you go to church? Jeff Vanderstilt, in his book, Gospel Fluency, we did that Gospel Fluency workshop a couple weeks ago, and I recommend that book to you. It's really good. This is kind of the message in that book again and again. This is what he said. I found that when we live our lives intentionally as a display people, we get plenty of opportunities to talk about why we do it. Lives full of grace and love, Schedules rearranged to make space and listen and serve. Budgets adjusted to feed and care for people. Or words spoken to protect and build up. All demand explanations. 
These things don't really make sense apart from the gospel. Yet in our explanation to others, we often forget to give them Jesus. He goes on in his book, and I'm going to blow through these pretty quickly, to list five reasons why most Christians remain silent. That we get in the situation, that we're asked the question that Paul has asked, tell me about what's going on here, buddy. And yet we, we fumble the ball. We, we speak nothing of the gospel. This is what he says, five reasons. We'll go through these pretty quickly. One, that we are in a spiritual battle, so the enemy of our souls tries everything possible to keep us from speaking about Jesus. You ever notice that? You ever felt the actual resistance against speaking about the way? Two, many of us love what people think of us more than we love people. Man, that'll land hard. Three, most people have never tried to share their gospel hope, and therefore they've never experienced the Spirit of God giving them words and boldness. Isn't that what Paul says even as he's doing it? That God is actually, the Holy Spirit is empowering me right now in front of you, Agrippa, to give an answer for the hope that's within me, which is the gospel. For many Christians aren't gospel fluent. They've never worked those muscles out. They've read a lot about them. They know a lot of theological things. They know them up here, but they've never exercised those faith muscles. And because they haven't done that, they've never seen an outpouring of the Spirit in their life. And then five, most Christians don't really believe that their neighbors, friends, and family members will spend eternity apart from God. This is the thing that should keep us up at night. This is the haunting truth that should grab us ever so often when we remember that people who don't know Christ will spend eternity away from him. And I I might take it to the next level. Maybe it's not that we just don't really believe that, but many of us, we just don't really care. We've become so self-righteous, so orbiting our lives around around us and and what we have and we've we've added a, a ticket to heaven to to our our portfolio like you know i got the, got the, this in the 401k and i got this oh and i'm gonna go to heaven one day man i've just got my life all together god said no that's that's not the point second thessalonians 2 let me close with this verse I think I have it up there. I love this. Paul said, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Just love that phrase, entrusted with the gospel. We, as the church, we've been entrusted with the gospel to speak hope into really dark situations, to speak life in the situations that are filled with death. We've been entrusted with the good news of Jesus. Entrusted like it's on loan to us. And we've been commanded to take this gospel to the very ends of the earth. And that starts with the person across the street or across the desk. So we wouldn't forget when Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, 
He told them to take this when you get together with each other, proclaiming my death until I come again. In other words, that the good news would always be on your lips and always be in your mind, always be beating in your heart. We're going to close our service as we do many times with this, but with communion, and you don't have to be a member of our church to participate, but you do have to be part of God's family and walking in obedience with him. And so I want to give you some time just to get your heart ready. The band's going to come up and lead us in a minute, but before we do any of that, as you're just there, would you just talk to God? Would you ask that God, ask that God would bring conviction in your heart if there's any sin in your life that, that you'd be aware of it and you would repent of that and confess that to him, knowing that he promised that he would forgive us of all unrighteousness as we, as we ask. Would you ask God what open door he's put in front of you? The door might be open, has been open for so long that you, you, just, you just don't even notice it anymore. What, what open door has he placed in front of you? And finally, would you, would you ask God that he would give you an opportunity to declare the good news of Jesus to someone in your life this week? Don't pray that if you don't want to do it. You start praying those things, God's going to open that door for you. God, we're so thankful that we're part of your family. I'm sure there's some here that feel like they're on the outside looking in, and I pray for them. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the face of Jesus for any that might be among us that aren't part of your kingdom, part of your family, that they would take a step of faith today? Lord, I pray for us as your church that that our hope would really be in you. Not that we would claim hope in you and then have hope in other things, but our lives would be provocative and compelling to a lost and dying world. That we would have a chance even this week to give an answer about the hope that's within us because our lives look so remarkably different than the culture in which we live. Lord, and I pray for our church. Lord, will we become a people who are passionate about the gospel? Who look for ways to display it in our lives and to declare it from our mouths. Lord, I pray for a harvest of souls. I do. I pray. Father, as you're doing work in the lives of many people, and as we say yes to your spirit, that we would be able to articulate the gospel to people, even this week, we would see them pass from death into life right before our eyes. Forgive us for where we've become complacent and apathetic when we seek our own comfort more than we do your glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Whenever you're ready for communion, you just come. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone today.
In a moment, we'll sing together.
King of kings, you are my everything, and I will adore you.